Hello, church family again. Uh, I trust that you are doing well, and I do hope that uh, uh, you guys are still walking closely with the Lord and finding ways to fellowship with one another during these times. I know it's strange being away from the church, uh, but for whatever reason, the Lord is sovereign, and He is good in light of all these things, and I look forward to the day when we can, can, can meet again, can be able to fellowship with one another. Uh, my wife and I were actually talking about that today, where it's strange where uh, uh, when we anticipate Saturday night, we're like, are, are, we're physically and mentally prepared to go out the next day, but we're unable to because of this. Uh, but when we listen to live stream, as thankful we are for technology, we realize it's not the same as being with the church body. So we miss you guys, and we look forward to uh, the reunion that is bound to take place in the future. Before I start... Uh, this devotional, I do want to say that uh, I'm going to do something different. Uh, again, this is pretty much whatever I want to do with the Devo. I can change things as I like. But uh, one of the things that was announced last Friday uh, was that I want to do a Q&A with you guys. Uh, you guys should be able to have a link, either in the email or just you can send the questions that you have to uh, the admin guys that join Ayers. Uh, and this is really for me to uh, shepherd and care for you guys from a distance uh, and even knowing what's within your own hearts. Uh, everything that you want to ask, you feel free to ask. You can even ask personal questions. You can ask theological questions. You can ask practical life questions. And whatever you want to ask, feel free to do it. Uh, I'll release these questions or the answers to your questions every Friday. I won't answer all of them at one time, but I'll probably answer maybe 10 to 12 minutes worth of questions. So the question that is a really complex question, I, I might take the whole 12 minutes. If the question is an easy question, I might just take like, I might be able to answer a little bit more. Uh, but feel free to ask whatever questions you like. Just forward those questions to the admin guys. Uh, and I think maybe the admin guys are going to put a, put a Google Doc for it too, or whatever, whatever the case may be. Uh, this is just my way to maybe care for you guys and maybe help you guys think through some things uh, as, you're, as we're going through this shut-in together. Before I start, I'd like to open us in a time of uh, prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege to be able to look through your word again and to look through your word every day, Lord. We know that it is uh, only by your good, uh, your goodness and kindness you reveal yourself through your word. And even in this book where you are seemingly absent, your fingerprints actually is throughout this entire book, Lord. Thank you for the time that we have to look at your word. Pray that it can be helpful, encouraging, edifying to us all. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So, if there's one thing that this virus has taught us is that we have absolutely no control over our life. Uh, I think I'm reminded <coughs> by uh, in Proverbs where it said that the man plans his uh, uh, ways, but the Lord directs his steps. I'm also reminded in the end of James where it said that don't worry about tomorrow, for uh, today has enough troubles, and and you know we can't even we have no assurance that tomorrow will even would come. And this whole virus that really radically changed our our uh, perception of control in our life because things are just so different now. Overnight, it seems that things are uh, just changing so rapidly and uh, there's just more restrictions and God is in control no matter what is going on in the world. And it even seems like every day there are new findings and new discoveries and there are, aren't uh, any clear definitive answers. But we know for a fact that God knows all the answers that man has questions for. Uh, he will use this tragedy for his purpose with believers or without believers. He is 
uh, that powerful. He knows all things. He can do whatever he wants, with or without the people uh, even aware of his actions. And that's what I see. This is what we get uh, when we get to the book of Esther, and especially um, starting here in chapter two. Just a quick review of chapter one. Remember chapter one, uh, King Harris was a crazy king that had a party, wanted to show off uh, all the things that he has, and uh, what ended up happening was uh, he had this huge party, and everyone showed up, everyone was having a good time, and he wanted to, almost like the main event was to show off his wife, but uh, his wife refused, and he and his group of little henchmen decided, hey, this is not cool, we can't have this uh, one queen disobey her husband, otherwise all our wives are going to go against us. So they made this edict to basically ban her from, uh, from, from the, from, from Susa or Persia, uh, this area. And what was really interesting now is like, this is, uh, years later in chapter two, uh, you notice it begins with after these things. Now, after these things, I think it's, it's interesting to note that if this is about three or four years, because around after, after these things, like it's not just necessarily just the events that happened in chapter one, but in between chapter one and this event was three or four years. Uh, um, King Ajaharas went against the Greece Empire, and he had this uh, water battle, like it's not, not like a water fight with like water guns or whatever, but it was like, you know, it was like a, a battle at sea, and he lost. And when he came back, uh, there's a there's a story that said that he was so mad when he landed back in Egypt. He was so mad that he decided to take off his belt and start attacking the sea. Uh, he started whipping the sea and cursing the sea and yelling at the sea to the point where he was so exhausted he passed out. And uh, and I, I had to Google this to see if this was actually true. It was like, he was like, does this actually happen in history? And you can actually find it. It, it sounds like a Babylon Bee article, like crazy man decides to fight the sea after losing a war. Uh, so this, this this would be after these things, like several years later, he, so after him getting angry and losing and then fighting the sea and, and passing out, he goes back home and there was this anger. It's like, uh, after these things, when the anger of King Edgar has subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So uh, at some point, he actually didn't remember that this happened. Look at verse 2. Then the king intended, who served him, said, let beautiful, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. So he actually forgot what happened. So after three or four years, uh, and I'm trying to imagine what the dialogue would have been like. He comes back, he's like, I need to talk to my wife. And they're like, um, sir, remember three or four years ago, we had that huge party. Uh, you made the rule about how we need to cast her out. Like, oh, yeah, that's right. And that's, that's kind of what's going on here. Now these young people are now giving him this advice, like, okay, now that we don't have Queen Vashti, we find someone else. So they, they decided to do this huge, basically a beauty pageant uh, to try to help the king find a new queen. Verse 3, let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetic be given them, that the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Ashti, and matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Now, understand that in verse 2, we see it as these young, uh, and the NASB uses the word attendees, and I think ESV uses the word young men. Oh, these, these are basically like 17, 18 year olds that decided, hey, let's just do this uh, beauty pageant for the king. And you have to understand, back then in the Persians' thinking, 
uh, whenever they do these type of pageants, it's like they'll have a whole bunch of ladies come together. And usually uh, when different cultures, they'll kind of isolate the ladies by themselves uh, so that when they meet the king, it's just kind of like, oh, this like this lady's fresh or whatever. But in the context of the Persians, they actually have the advisors kind of check up on the ladies to see what's going on. And these young men, they are doing this. They're planning this. They want the king to do this mainly because for self-interest. You know, they want to be able to have their own wives. They're like, because after the king chooses one of them, which is interesting because King Andrew Harris is one of the weird uh, guys actually wants, he actually believes, he, I mean, this is a polygamous society. He's the only guy that wants one wife. So that's unique about, that's what's weird about him. But even though he's in a culture that's polygamous, he wanted one wife. So then when the, all the wives are not chosen, these young people, would, these young attendees or young men would be able to, you know, have gotten to know some of these other beautiful ladies and, you know, may, might potentially strike a relationship with them. Now, personally, if you know me, if, if, you, if you've ever asked me, hey, should I ask this person out? I would say, I don't care. Do it. You should totally do it. Now, I'm generally pretty liberal about the way people ask people out and how the dating rituals. It's all weird. I don't care. It's cultural. It's preference. But this is one of those things that I hope that no one in our Bible site or in our church does. Does not go and do likewise. Don't set up some event with all the uh, single people, like single ladies, and you're the only guy there to try and win people over, win all the ladies over. That's not cool, okay? But that's what these people are doing. These 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 young attendees uh, gave this idea to the king, and then he they he actually thought, hey, it's a good idea, and then he he went with it. Um, Verse five. <clears throat> Verse five. Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jiar, the son of Shemel, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Now, if you remember when we were going through the book of Judges, the Benjamites were the uh, group that was rebellious and had the civil war and they were almost wiped out. Uh, that's the same Benjamite in terms of the group, in terms of that lineage. Uh, Mordecai isn't like from that time of the Judges, but rather Mordecai was, it's just, from that line of the Benjamites. Verse 6, uh, who have been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who have been exiled with Joachim, uh, Jeconiah, king of Judah, who Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing up Hadassah, uh, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So this is essentially like almost like a cousin or nephew uh, that um, uh, that Mordecai took under to take care of. Uh, Esther lost her parents, so uh, the only relative that was there was this was Mordecai. He took him as family. Uh, so it came about when the command and decree of the king heard and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Haggad that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai who was in charge of the women. Now it's, in verse 8 it's interesting that, that Esther was taken. This is um, It means that Esther was put into this position. This was not something that she had a choice. It was basically uh, Mordecai giving, uh, making her go through with this now, you can see the moral, ethical problem here. But remember, these are all people that was doing what's right in their own eyes for their own self-interest. We will see more of that later on. Now, the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. So he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food and gave her seven choice maids 
from the king's palace and transfer her and her maid to the best place in the harem. Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Morgoth had instructed her that she should not make them known. For uh, yeah, so Mordecai and Esther bas- basically are like covering their Jewish background, and there's different debates on why that is. Some people think that maybe it's because uh, the Jews were in exile and then Jews were looked down upon, so maybe this would help them maybe win uh, uh, like favor with the king. And either way, however you view these things he didn't want people to know that she's a Jew. Every, uh, verse 11, every day Mordecai walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was doing, how Esther was, and how she was fared. So this is mainly uh, Mordecai just worried about her and just going back and forth you know, every day looking and making sure she's okay. Verse 12, now when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Azure's after the end of her 12 months under the regulation of the women for the days of beautification were complete, complete as follows. Six months with oil of mirth and six months with spices, the cosmetics for women. So basically that one year to make themselves look good for the king. It was insane. Uh, the young lady would go in to the king in this way. And that she had desire was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. Um, so basically, she could she use whatever arsenal she has to try to win this king. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem, to the custody of Shayasha as the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not again go into king unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So it's important to know that there are a whole bunch of these ladies, and the only person that the king will choose is if they remember the per- if he remembers that person's name. So. This person needs to leave a lasting remark, otherwise uh, they would they've lost their chance. Verse 15. Now, when the turn now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who uh, had taken her as his daughter, came to go to the king, she did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the woman, advised. So she again uh, she was doing what someone else was advising her to do. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to the king, to King Ezra, to his royal place in the tenth month, which is the t- month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all, all the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all the princes and his servants. He also made a holiday for his province and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. So it was like basically the search is over. We found our queen and whole people. And again, another party just to celebrate the new queen. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's place, Bigthan and Teresh, two of king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on the king, on king Azurez. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. So, sometime later, uh, Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate. Now, he wasn't just lawyering. He was actually there because that's his job. And he just so happened to overhear these two 
it uses the word king's officials. Uh, other translations use the word eunuch. Uh, basically, there he just happened over here. These two people fighting and plotting against the king, uh, and he there was obviously some nepotism here because the queen is in place. So he told, uh, "Hey, this is what's going on," and then use it to try to elevate me. And that's why Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. In verse 23, now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a ga- on a gallows. And it was written in the book of Chronicles in the king's presence. So all there was, so Mordecai, like you know, providentially heard what was going on, told Queen Esther to tell the king that he found a plot against the king, and what he was hoping for was some sort of promotion, uh, but he didn't get that. Instead, the only thing that happened was that it was it was just written down in the book of Chronicles, and that those two guys were hanged on the gallows. And just so you know, this word gallows here is not like. The American idea of gallows, like it's not like you get hanged by the neck. This is like spikes. Like if you guys, oh man, I would date myself, but if you guys played the video game Mortal Kombat, if you see, if you remember the things like finish him and they like knock the guy off and then land to like a like spikes pits. That's what the gallows was back then. Uh, they would just push someone down into these huge long wind spikes and they'd just be impaled and they'll be hanged there. And uh, that's what happened. Like this is. Uh, you will see this come up again later on at the end of the book, but uh, that's all that happened. Uh, Mordecai saved the king. He, there was no, uh, there wasn't any accommodation. But we'll see how even to all of this that happened, God is still sovereign because all of these things, these last three verses, is crucial because they come up again later on. And we again see how God ultimately protects His people, even though in this entire scene, this is a really wicked scene. All of these people were were. Uh, you know, driven by their own self-interest, Mordecai, uh, Esther, uh, the king, the young men, everyone did what they wanted to do for their own me- means. But even though they were doing what they wanted to do, God's will was, is ultimately going to be accomplished. And we'll see how that is in the coming weeks. Um, again, this is just the first part. And then in the next two or three sessions uh, or uh, devos, I'm going to give us some practical applications on how this shows us God's sovereign hand in light of a very strange world. Okay, I hope this is helpful, and I, uh, I'll, I guess I'll, you'll hear from me later. Uh, take care, everyone.